Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and my guest today is Jeremiah Ginn, software-defined cybersecurity evangelist at AT&T and author of Diving Into Sassy, which will be our topic for the day. Jeremiah has been on the end-user side and large carrier MSP side of the WAN table and brings that kind of dual perspective to his useful new book aimed at providing some clarity to the sometimes confusing SASE market. In our conversation, we talk about how to define SASE, even for different audiences and stakeholders, and how to identify the key elements of what really needs to be included in the SASE framework. We talk about the fast-paced update cycle for security software that's necessary for the modern network and the threat landscape of it, and the implications of this for upskilling and for managed security services. We touch on zero trust and why enterprises really need this security posture to be a part of any SASE framework. And of course, we can't talk about SASE without hitting on SD-WAN and the role of access in the SASE acronym. Finally, I asked Jeremiah about the impact of these security changes on the WAN itself and how corporate networks are going to develop over the next few years. Jeremiah has written what I think is a very clear book with plenty of examples and analogies to cut through some of the confusion that has come about in this emerging sassy market. And I definitely encourage listeners to check the book out. But first, you can listen to him explain many of the topics he gets into on the book here on the show. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, this is an audio podcast, um, but we do release little uh, clips um, uh, of, of us talking in video. And I have to say, you've come to the show the most well-dressed of any guests. I think you're my 50-some-odd guest here. <laughs> Kudos to that. And I'll, I'll tell you, though, this, it is still tech, right? So you didn't, you didn't have to wear a tie. You know? <laughs> well, it's okay. It's a, it's a psychological tool to keep me on my game. That's right. There's there's the old saying you can you can hear the tie, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, uh, I, we're going to dive into your book called "Diving Into uh, Secure Access Service Edge Sassy." Um, but uh, first, I wanted to start with just a brief background on you. Um, I met you uh, many years ago while recruiting you to speak at one of our WAN Summit events when you were on the end user side. So I, I love it when we have guests who have kind of been on both sides of the corporate networks table. But uh, take us uh, briefly through your background, if you don't mind, and uh, and what you're up to now at AT&T. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, not to go too far back, uh, you know, I uh, served in the military, did special operations as Airborne Ranger and Second Ranger Battalion. That was my second childhood, and, and that's where... Hmm. Uh, I try to live up those standards every single day uh, because that's, you know, to me, the greatest thing about that environment was everybody wanted to be at work. Everybody was competing with each other, not to put each other down, but to build the organization up. So mm -hmm. I try to re-embody that uh, mentality in everything I do, especially at AT&T, where I come to work to build the organization up. Right. Absolutely. A uh, couple other things about me. I have 11 children um, wow. through... Um, uh, three biological and the rest are uh, adopted. I uh, work with uh, multiple foster care organizations. 
I am a, uh, been married to my wife for uh, about 28 years, and uh, she saw me in my uniform one time, and you know she's kept me ever since. So I'm thankful <laughs> for that. That's right. Yeah. Um, Excellent. And then uh, I have uh, three grandchildren right now, one on the way. Um, you know, we'd, we'd adopted a girl a number of years ago, and she's uh, now 35. So, um, you know, she was a Marine, married a Marine, mm-hmm. and, and uh, did really good there. Now, um, my career uh, at this point, about I've got about 25 years since the military, and uh, that's primarily been focused on network engineering. But I've worked in a number of roles, building lines of business around networking, uh, building teams, building uh, engineers. And I feel like I get a certain special thing out of engineers because they know exactly, you know, the thing that Zig Ziglar always tried to teach us was nobody knows, uh, you know, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And so I try to put that into uh, my engineers. People have heard me say in conferences and also uh, in in uh, books and, and uh, other notes I put online uh, is that we've got to love our engineers. And, and mm-hmm. I truly do. I love those engineers and I, uh, I try to invest in them every step of the way. Spend a lot of time investing in uh, veterans uh, through different veterans organizations as well. But uh, focusing specifically on the career that we're here to talk about in technology, I got started off at NCR in 97 when I first got out of the Army. Mm-hmm. And the guys that took interest in me uh, had 42 years of electrical engineering experience You know when I started in 1997. Right. Right. And those guys really invested in me a whole lot. And all I had to do was, you know, every oddball task there was in the building, clean closets, running a fax machine for 12 hours, building a picnic table. <laughs> and from that, you know, the guys that were doing the R&D took interest in me and started building me up. So I've tried to repay right. that throughout my career. And uh, so most recently, uh, the last few years at AT&T, I've been focused on software-defined technologies, virtual network functions, uh, universal customer premise equipment like uh, Flexware or you know NFE chassis that are focused on uh, published network functions. A lot of cloud architecture. Uh, I've I've touched um, probably more SD WAN deals than anybody else in the market. Uh, over mm-hmm. twenty three hundred and counting. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That, and, that, I mean, that's like one a day almost. For a while, yeah, for a while, they had me in product and uh, they had me answering questions and dealing with weird problems, uh, mm-hmm. which seems to be my specialty. And what was happening was I was doing 18 hours of conference calls a day, uh, wow. 30 minutes per customer. So right, I was right. going so through just, 30 mm-hmm. plus customers in a day you know, just going through the problems. And, and what I saw from that was a number of patterns. And so mm-hmm. what you'll see in the mm-hmm. book is, you know, the benefit of those lessons learned from just going yeah. through a lot of pain with my customers. Excellent. Yeah. All right. That, I mean, that's really helpful background to to understand um, that that process and, and where you acquired some of this. So you're you're a busy guy, 11 kids, three grandkids, all these, uh, you know, sort of organizations. You took the time to write this book on Sassy. Why? Why? Why did the market need need a sassy book right now? Sure, sure. So when I started to write the book, or when I started thinking about writing the book, uh, I was uh, contributing to MEF's one one seven working group on sassy, mm-hmm. and I I showed up to the group feeling like I was pretty much the junior guy of the group, uh, and uh, there was a few people in that that group that 
that really invested in me and took some time to, you know, kind of, you know, get me onboarded. So I've spent the last two years and we just released uh, just a couple months ago, the uh, SASE and the zero trust framework uh, standards from the Metro mm -hmm. Ethernet form, right? And the, right. they right. prefer to go by MEF today. But in the process of that, you know, I was, uh, you know, asked to write a white paper, asked to write articles and write different things. And it just gave me the courage to, to articulate, um, you know, some patterns I was seeing in the market. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, actually, uh, I wouldn't have wrote this book if it hadn't been really for the investments that the, uh, the MEF group has, has put into me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. And, and, and certainly I think, uh, they they have been really helpful in in terms of bringing clarity to to this market and and reading your book was was very helpful for me. One of the things I liked in particular was that it it as it was with SD WAN. I feel if we go back five or six years now, it it is seemingly hard from an analyst perspective to nail down when any when the word sassy comes out of any industry player's mouth. What do they mean, right? And I, I think you did a really good job of giving us examples of how to do that clearly and concisely. Um, I, I particularly liked how you even sort of in one chapter later in the book uh, separate out, this is how you might describe SASE to a group of executives. This is how you might describe SASE to a group of you know networking or, or uh, cybersecurity professionals. I wonder, you know, without having to quote yourself directly, could, could you define SASE and, and maybe in the, in the subtly different ways that you have for those two groups? Yeah. So, um, you know, a couple months ago, I was asked the same question at, at the MEF uh, you know, conference down in uh, Miami, and mm -hmm. the, the the thought process was to you know just keep this on the high level for the executive thinker. It's a software defined cybersecurity model built on zero trust framework, and mm -hmm. that's really the way we look at SASE is that that model built with zero trust in mind um, because really the future of all of our security is going to have to be based on a zero trust framework. So uh, we look at uh, SASE and Zero Trust Framework as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear because I've thought of that that way a long time. As a matter of fact, the very first episode of this podcast was was about Zero Trust when it was kind of emerging. Uh, in fact, SASE wasn't really the thing folks were talking about at that point. This would have been you know sort of a, a quarter two of. 2020 or so sassy was out there but you know very very nascently you know so um so so i think everyone listening to the show probably has a, a pretty clear idea of, of of what the zero trust kind of framework is um with but with that in mind i wonder if you could also just kind of go through and uh if you if you will uh, give us a, a maybe a short list of the sort of sine qua non you know uh, of of the elements that would include uh, in in a in a successful SASE framework, so there's zero trust. Uh, what what else would you want to make sure implementing SASE that someone uh, had under control for their corporate network? Yeah, a lot of times when we're when we're trying to explain to customers, you know, what we're talking about is is SASE is is the marriage between SD WAN and uh, mm -hmm. security. But mm -hmm. uh, moving forward, we had the SSE come up in the market, and we may want to talk about that a little bit more in a mm -hmm. minute, mm -hmm. but. But yeah. to me, SSE is just SASE minus SD WAN. Now we could right. get 
we can get very technical and we can we can go through and list the elements. But when we talk about what SASE is, we, we always teach with kind of a five pillar approach, right? Mm-hmm. So SD-WAN, uh, zero trust network access, firewall as a service, um, you know, software, ga- uh, you know, gateway, secure web gateway, uh, mm-hmm. and CASB, right? And mm-hmm. CASB, mm-hmm. you know, generally incorporates DLP, right? Right, right, right. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that, that that's exactly what I was looking for is this kind of like, you know, core pillars of, of implementing a, a SASE framework. Absolutely. Um, and yes, indeed, I think, I think, you know, later on, I, I want to touch on, on more about the SD-WAN, but before we get there, um, one thing that you cited in the book several times from, from my recollection is this idea going back to, you know, earlier software development in, in the eighties and, and whatnot, um, that, uh, the 85% perfection rule versus 100% perfection. And that even in software development, if you, if the companies that have tried to get to 100% before publishing or going to the market have often failed, uh, take us through that sort of history as you presented it and, and how it relates to SASE, if you would. Sure, sure. Uh, I think the first place to start is that I was... I think I was born as an engineering thinker or as an engineer. <laughs> it is it's a certain kind of brain. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. 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 And, and so from a, uh, engineering perspective, you know, uh, growing up with, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of a strong, uh, faith-based background, mm-hmm. add in, you know, military special operations, getting more exacting, uh, you know, I, uh, in a little mixture of OCD, I think perfectionist <laughs> is, you know, the, the plague I try to try to run from as, as much mm-hmm. as possible mm-hmm. because that perfectionism is the enemy of, of a lot of different types of success, right? So right. when we look at uh, the players in the market, like Digital Equipment Corporation built a system that I had a customer, manufacturing customer, that made every product they made from uh, I want to say 1987 until at least 2007, leveraging a deck alpha. That's as close mm-hmm. as to perfection as you can get. That box right. did not have to be rebooted every three years, right? Mm-hmm. So in that run, it did not have to be rebooted every single year, every single day, every single month, whatever, right? It it would run. So, but digital alpha, uh, you know, digital equipment corporation isn't with us anymore. Right. 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 Not in that form. Right. Mm -hmm. They they failed financially in the market out of their pursuit of perfection. So when we think of perfection in telecommunications, you know, we're thinking five nines. Right. Five Mm -hmm. nines Mm -hmm. of availability. And when we think of that in software development, your zeros start start multiplying really quickly. Right. You start getting a number that's got a long string of zeros behind it on development costs. And the worst part of that is market timing. So when we go for five nines or seven nines of perfection, which I've heard people strive for, um, mm-hmm. their their dev, dev cycle, uh, you know, their software development cycle for getting to the market, you know, five to seven years. Well, the market doesn't mm-hmm. care at that point, right? The market cares now. You tell me about something I can have. I want it now, you know, and, and that's what I'm going to pay for. So what, um, and, and I... I hope he doesn't see this as negative, but I'm going to say that what I believe the market learned from Bill Gates is 
that the market buys at about 85% of perfection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when you look at the uh, DOS and Windows and they first came out, they were closer to 85% of perfection than they were five or seven nines. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the market bought, the market bought big. And, you know, that's why, you know, he became the richest man in the world at one point was really the, he knew the market timing for the product and he taught us a number of business lessons. And I, I take away from that, that the market needs a first iteration of a product that does something useful and is basically effective when it goes to market. They're willing to accept uh, incremental updates that get us closer to perfection. Mm-hmm. But what they're not willing to wait for is perfection. And so if right. you look at the numbers, as it ties back into this, really what we're looking at is iterative development. DevOps mm-hmm. teaches us you know, the CI/CD methodology. And, and I think really CI should really be continual improvement, uh, but it's continual mm-hmm. integration. And uh, matter of fact, I made that mistake in the book a number of times where I kept putting continual improvement because I really wanted to redefine the terms for the, the industry. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. So, uh, but the idea is we should do something that works and has, has value, uh, deploy that, get input, start your continual feedback loop. Right. Mm-hmm. And from that feedback, iteratively, you know, do that iteration. The next iteration that comes out is better. Maybe it's 10% right. better. So now we're at not, uh, 95% instead of 85%. Yeah, mm-hmm. But maybe it's just 3% better. That's okay. Right. We're making forward progress. And so each version that comes out after that should be uh, at least a percentage point better or getting closer and closer to that perfection without worrying about achieving perfection. Right. And and I, I like that. I, I, I love I often use in in my own work the, the the phrase "done is better than perfect," right? You know, and there's also if, you, if if anybody's familiar out there, there's a there's an author uh, named James Clear who has a book basically that's all about getting one percent better. You know that that um, that that iterative progress is actually more efficacious in many cases than than trying to strive for for perfection. So I think. I think you draw a clear line with that and, and, and why it is involved in Sassy in the book. And one of the ways that, that I found really um, compelling that you did that in this book was talk about how uh, because the threat landscape never sleeps, right? Um, uh, the, the bad actors in, in the uh, cybersecurity world are around the globe and, and working 24-7 to make sure that whatever technology you have in place is, is somewhat inadequate, right? Um, that, that the software development and update cycle for security has, has shortened to a punishing kind of two to six week cycle. Um, uh, what does that do for the corporate cybersecurity posture? And how do you think um, a, a good SASE uh, framework and implementation will, will handle that? Sure, sure. So I think one of the key ingredients in success on SASE is going back to the DevOps mindset, looking at continual integration, uh, or excuse me, I did it again, uh, continual uh, integration, uh, continual deployment. And mm-hmm. what we're looking at is the idea that integration is key 
So sassy cannot work in a silo. So um, today, if I was to deploy a, a greenfield effective sassy platform, it may start at the five pillars that we're talking about, but it's probably going to have an average of 17 services. Wow. Each one of those services, yeah, yeah, 17 on average, right? right? And we're marketing one to three on a regular basis, right? But, right. but if you look at the full SASE stack, what we need is essentially orchestration and we need integration, right? And at bare minimum, all of those need to be sending, um, you know, to your SIM, uh, you know, any sort of logging, any sort of information. So your SIM can be focusing on understanding, you know, the correlation of the data, you know, looking for trends and patterns. So I say we go to step further and each one of those services in the stack need to be integrated via API. And I, mm -hmm. I always advocate putting in kind of an API backbone that is in place permanently where you basically are publishing all available APIs and then restrict them only by policy. So you're not having to right. do integration. So when you put in your first service, you publish all APIs uh, to a backbone and now all APIs are available. So the next time you put in a new service, now only, you only have to focus on deploying the APIs for that new service. And then you can always restrict what you don't want by policy. But the idea is you're integrating all these services so they can communicate cross-platform, you know, be able to correlate who's doing what, where, and how, uh, but also your uh, SIM functionality is collecting all of these uh, correlated conversations. It is developing a stronger security posture by having awareness of everything going on on every service in the stack. And that's taking the human element out of that, the APIs in place so that you don't have to say, oh, do we need to run a refresh on this? Or do we, you know, once, once you have your policy in place, that just keeps happening via AI essentially, right? Yes, sir. So we basically build an AI ops model that is constantly finding new things that we weren't aware of, constantly creating tickets for us to go analyze, you know, how we need to integrate that. But the tr answer is we're always going to integrate it, right? Mm -hmm. And then we're going to control it by policy. We're going to orchestrate it. Uh, and then we're going to automate it, right? And the right. AI ops model is really leveraging machine learning tools, you know, any sort of correlation and function to where we can start getting to the point where we have something akin to an AI bot that's automatically solving, you know, the most common problems. So at least 97% of the common problems should be non-human uh, interactive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because this is all way too complex for humans to, to, to manage, right? But, but even at that, there's a level of complexity in terms of, I think, harmonizing all a full stack like you said the average deployment might have 17 services each of those services have experts uh in in the that product domain um and you i think pretty convincingly argue in the book essentially that there might be a handful of experts in the industry that truly understand one particular domain of this sassy stack if you will um uh and it's pretty hard to imagine that expertise being spread across, say, thousands of enterprise networks that have these uh, large threat landscapes. Um, so how do you think that, you know, MSPs, obviously you're at AT&T, one of the, the largest carriers slash MSPs 
of networks around. So th- th- this is very much your perspective. But but how do you think uh, enterprises should approach this, having sat on on their side of the table from from a management standpoint in that sense? Sure, sure. No, I've been the WAN manager. I you know I've been responsible for security and and systems engineering. You know, and I, you know, so I've got the perspective on both sides of fence and I would never ask any of my customers to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while that's, um, you know, an issue for long-term employability with a services company, um, the, reality <laughs> is, <laughs> the reality is I really believe that when we get to SASE, uh, SD-WAN, SSE, uh, Zero Trust, we get to a lot of these comprehensive security services um, that you need a managed service offering, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there's a, a, a couple of brands out there. I don't want to get brand oriented in this call, but um, mm-hmm. there's a couple of brands out there that have done a great job of creating a full stack that's fully integrated that you can go buy today. You can buy it on a credit card. You can buy it on a, a, a terms, you know, invoice right. and uh, they will handle everything. But the, the, the problem is, you know, the uh, cost um, you know, of entry, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive barrier that when we look at just, if the only thing we were trying to solve for is trying to build our own sock with, with consistent SIM functionality, right. We're, you know, we're looking at a million dollars before we start hiring people. Right. And, right. Yeah. So and then you look, can you even hire the people that would be needed uh, to, to manage those services is the question. Right. Yeah. If you got to poach them, right. If you mm-hmm. want those, those key people that are that strong, you're going to have to poach them from somebody else, uh, which means that you're susceptible from, uh, you know, being poached from, you know, in the future. So the problem is there's a talent gap, there's a labor gap, uh, and there's a financial cost of entry. And so we look at that in terms of, um, you know, one gentleman I researched in the process of writing the book had developed the term uh, Rossi, return on uh, security investment. Mm-hmm. And that's not something we think about a lot, but right. that's something we should be. We should right. be thinking, you know, instead of with ego saying, oh, my people are the best in the world. Well, I mean, they may be the best people in the world, but you can't perpetually keep them on the razor's edge. Right. It, right. it, it just won't work. Right. Mm-hmm. So we start to approach the problem by continual or, or perpetual learning where every shift somebody should be learning you know, three different 30 minute segments learning about how to do their job better. Right. Right. Now we should be investing 30% of our labor budget into continual improvement of our skill set for our human uh, analyst or, or human operations personnel that are, are trying to keep us alive. Well, when Mm -hmm. we start adding up all these costs, we're not going to see the average enterprise achieve a return on security investment. And that's why I say, you know, shop, the managed services offers out there, have your folks be the advocates, have your folks train as well as they can to advocate for your company. And really when we get to complex security models, use a managed services partner, you know, that is doing a good job for their customer, build in a performance KPI uh, and a user experience scoring clause into the contract, build an innovation clause into the contract you know, they need to be innovating where you have 10% less tickets per year or some sort of a uh, 10% improvement uh, performance metrics year over year and how they're taking care of you. And you should be having the, you know, an industry world-class user experience 
from their service. And if they're not right. doing that, they're not the right company to work with. But the reality is the return on security investment indicates that we need a managed service offering to be able to have all the right resources to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it certainly strikes me that that um, it, it might be pretty easy to see the economies of scale in place here that with this continual education and upskilling cycle that, you know, doing that with a central group that then, you know, manages many networks uh, makes a lot more economic sense than than doing that thousands of times at each individual company. Now, of course, there are companies where their particular needs are so bespoke, you know, that that uh, that perhaps different, you know, different solutions work for for different organizations. But certainly, uh, you know, for for a lot of organizations, uh, I, I can see that uh, being a powerful argument, certainly. Sure. Right, so I want I wanted to focus in um, as I mentioned, literally the first episode of, of this show when we were the Wayne Manager podcast was about zero trust. But um, take us through your sort of experience with with the, the, the zero trust framework and and how it has evolved and and come to play a central part in what became SASE. Sure. Uh, so my my model in my head that I keep um, on zero trust really starts with a lesson that, uh, that the whole market learned uh, back with 802.1x or 802.11, uh, yeah, 802.1x, um, Mac mm-hmm. security, right? right? So when we look at Mac security, um, a lot of people got hurt really bad implementing uh, identity services, um, solutions from multiple players that relied on Mac security uh, because we were going in and we were trying to lock down layer two, but mm-hmm. it worked too well. So what happened mm-hmm. was when people implemented it, they bricked their equipment. Right. That, that is not the goal. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. So for those that are yeah. aware of the term of bricking the equipment, what it is, <laughs> is when you have to RMA uh, the device because you can't even reload the uh, operating system on it. Right. It, it is literally a brick at that point in terms of its utility is the the origin of the phrase right so yeah yeah but that's yeah. effective security nobody right. can access it's, the it's, network exactly yes yeah if uh if literally no one can access it uh that uh, that is it's a great example of of um why some people are afraid of of ai that if you if you take something very literally right and you know well here we go i, I solved the problem uh, you know of, of uh whatever pollution i killed all the humans right you know, so like, that's right that's right yeah. so uh if effective but not desirable right exactly yeah so so how did how did zero trust network access come along and kind of uh, you know bridge that uh, that gap if you will yeah, so this has been a problem since the very beginning. So if you look at the history of network engineering, uh, network engineers uh, devised ways to help people communicate effectively, right? So through machines. If you look at the history of security, which predates any technology, um, you know, the goal is to keep people out, right? To restrict right. access, right? So to protect and and isolate and, and, and really to identify threats and make sure the threats don't get access to whatever the precious resources, whether it's human or or uh, financial or or anything else. So when we start looking at zero trust, this has been a model where firewall guys and network guys have been fighting each other, you know, since you know mm-hmm. the industry began. 
And the firewall guy said, you don't need access to anything. And the uh, network guy says, I have to create access to everything because that's what, you know, what the demand is. And zero trust, looking at that uh, MaxSec model, you know, the .1x model, um, what it did was it showed the type of access that we need to have, which is uh, no access whatsoever. So in my book, I give an analogy about a person in a desert trying to get access to something on the internet to, to be able to get help to get out of the desert, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in that zero trust environment, he's out there in the desert. There's no communications methods at all, right? right. Uh, just, just a person in the desert. So when we start to look at how do we get access, there has to be a policy that allows a, a series of locks to be unlocked and each each lock represents a different level of access to a resource so it mm -hmm. could be access to the network card on your computer it could be access to your computer in general it could be uh access to uh, the wi-fi where you're at the access to right. the application access to the mm -hmm. internet so at every level it's like a little bit of a lock and in the other analogy i i used to explain this is you take your favorite uh, escape artist magician, you put them in a tank of water, you know, with, uh, that's closed, lock on top of it, fully submerged, can't get any air out of the tank whatsoever, and they've got a series of chains, and each one of those chains is locked, right? It mm -hmm. has a series of locks locking them in those chains. Now, to get out of the tank and get oxygen for that person, the oxygen is a precious resource that that uh, magician. Uh, wants to get access to desperately. Mm -hmm. So what that person's got to do is they've got to unlock each lock or each restriction method one at a time. And once all of them are unlocked, they will now get access to that precious resource, right. oxygen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, right? and to take that analogy maybe a little further to, to, to show the difference of not having a zero trust framework, it would be kind of like, Previously, if there was just one lock, right? Basically, it's like once you were in, you were in. You had access to everything, and um, and 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 the person's identity now really matters in in the zero trust framework. That be able to that identity is tied to the keys to each of those individual locks, essentially. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, without integration, the locks don't complement each other, and um, you know each lock should have its own timeout mechanism. Um, that mm -hmm. has, um, you know, has a period of time and a period of, you know, policy orientation where when it no longer matches what the policy says for allowance, it goes back to its mm -hmm. default mode, which is locked. Right. Absolutely. That makes sense. All right. Now let's uh, integrate another core part of, of SASE, which as, as you mentioned previously, uh, you know, SASE without SD-WAN is, is really SSE. Um, take us through the kind of difference of, of how, uh, you know, the, the industry has has separated SSE out of SASE now and, and ultimately kind of what role SD-WAN plays in SASE. And, and one of the main questions I want to ask you here, since I'm setting it up this way, is I've, I've heard kind of various people say, you know, some will say very hard line, you can't have... Sassy without SD-WAN. One could not implement Sassy without SD-WAN. You, you, you almost take that stance in the book, but, but there, maybe there's a little room. What, what, what is that room? I wonder. So please. Sure, yeah. sure. No, that's where we all started. We all started. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you go back to December of 2019, when Andrew Lerner uh, coined the phrase for Gartner, 
sassy, right? Mm -hmm. It was a series of observations, and and I had a couple of projects that were observed uh, in developing that. And to me, I felt it was just a natural uh, progression that we had to have security with SD-WAN. And what we created was a model where there was a series of different services on the same chassis, all connecting back to orchestration, all con uh, commonly uh, integrating for telemetry through orchestration, all feeding to a common SIM. So mm -hmm. when, we, when we looked at that, it started with the SD-WAN discussion. And when we said SASE, we thought SD-WAN is the foundation of SASE, and that's where we need to go. But really and truly, we understand that Zero Trust is the foundation of SASE. Mm -hmm. SD-WAN is, is the complementary solution where it needs to provide secure forwarding of traffic, right? right. Based on quality mechanisms, based on scoring. But um, SASE can exist without SD-WAN, and commonly in the market, it's referred to SSE when it doesn't have that. But the reality mm -hmm. is um, what we found was there's a journey. The journey starts with uh, legacy networking going back seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that journey was the, the latest evolution of centralized versus decentralized, you know, for all of our computing networking systems, that sort of thing. Right. So it kind of oscillates back and forth, just like bell bottoms. Every so often, bell bottoms are going to come <laughs> back to the market. Right. That's that right. sort of thing. And so this iteration was we need to go cloud first. We need to go cloud native and we need to get there. The problem is nobody was really ready for that. And there wasn't a great return on investment for everybody dumping everything that they had in capital expenditure and going straight to a pure cap cloud software as a service model. Right. Mm -hmm. So what we needed was we needed a bridge. We needed a transition plan to get there. So um, the first step in transition was, you know, to be able to have some cloud applications, some on-premise and, you know, some sort of connectivity like ExpressRoute with Azure uh, to, to be able to get there, right? But what we kept finding is that we're, we're coming short and SD-WAN brought us another step closer. SASE brings us another step closer. And what SSE brings us another step closer. And what we're seeing is evolution that gives us a roadmap to get from premise only um, mm. to a cloud native format. And really that roadmap means that we have to evolve every 18 months approximately in mm -hmm. what we're doing from a technology perspective. So if we deploy a SASE project over seven years, we've lost the whole point of everything. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it, that is that is the whole point is that gone, you know, very much in, in the MPLS model, it was buy a network for three, five, sometimes more years, put it in place and use it, right? And that that model is gone from the world forever, right? So, right. Yeah, absolutely. So so let, let's think about maybe an, an enterprise who is in that place because I, t I talk to some who are still, right? I, I'm relying fully on MPLS. We have centralized breakouts. We have a castle and moat security system. Um, what does a successful long-term SASE deployment look like for them in, in light of, of what you just described? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think initially the, the first goal is is to understand zero trust framework. It's an education problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Get to the point where you understand what that is. There's not a, a zero trust framework product, 
right? It's not a product. It's right. a framework. It specifically right. states a framework. Uh, so you can, you know, you can learn to look at everything you're doing from a security perspective in a zero trust mm-hmm. mindset. Right. But if I could interject real quick, there, there are there is in a sense a, a suite of products that that would fall under that definition, right? So like if I'm oh, uh, developing like privileged access management or or uh, you know even just something simple like multi-factor authentication, right? So you can sort of like organize these things by like their 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 suite of of, of constituent products, if you will. Does that make sense? Right, right. But you can't buy zero trust. You have to right. build right. 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 So you can Mm -hmm. buy the parts, but Mm -hmm. you've really got to understand the model to be able to deploy it. And that comes back to the managed services argument. You know, should we consume that as a managed service so Mm -hmm. we don't have to build our own? Right. Don't have to build our own, our own sock, our own, you know, everything. Right. As we go through there. But but I think on the journey, understanding zero trust framework starts then, you know, getting effective SD-WAN. SD-WAN allows us to be able to have a hybrid approach to networking. Uh, majority of my customers um, tried to go to pure internet-based SD-WAN and ended up buying back uh, MPLS into the equation for you know, 10 to 20% of the bandwidth, right? Mm-hmm. So they right-sized it primarily based on RTP traffic. You know, they wanted right. their voice to be protected. They wanted to fail safe in case of an internet storm, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. But it's, it's transitory. Uh, and at some point, SD-WAN will go away. SASE will remain, I believe, for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. It will mm-hmm. change names periodically right. Right. because that's what we do in the market. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> Well, that keeps it interesting for the marketing teams, right? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Now, but the reality is if you've got a good endpoint management solution and a good zero trust framework deployed and you've got good security, what you would do is all of your apps would be you know, essentially a published app you know, that's, that's uh, you know, available from the internet from any mm-hmm. device, but then you would have policy that dictates what devices and what users and, and what conditions access is allowed to those applications. But in that point, what I've got is I've got a ton of customers that are already got there mentally and they're eliminating private networks. Mm-hmm. They're eliminating mm-hmm. their private networks. So they're pulling private networks out. So 80% of their sites on average are going to be a Starbucks model where you come in, there's guest Wi-Fi, or right. there, there's a hosted 5G uh, on-premise uh, solution that mm-hmm. you know they come in, their phone seamlessly transitions that they get access to the internet. You know, there's a little bit of security around it, but essentially it's a guest access everywhere mentality. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And which, which, which cues me up pretty well for for my last question here, actually, which is uh, as as frequent listeners might know, I'm uh, often asking guests kind of a, a question around this topic, which is in, in that world that you just described, do you think, and, and in some ways this is kind of semantics, but do, do you think there's a world in which there's kind of no WAN in the future, right? That, that we have these kind of security postures in place, you don't need a private network, and it, and it looks more like what uh, networking might look like for a small business or something that just has SaaS products and and other as a service products and, and and an internet connection is is that on the horizon for the enterprise at some point? Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's the reality. And you know, we're gonna, you know, I hate to give a percentage on it, but we 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 have seen significant declines 
in private networking usage. And we've mm -hmm. seen the epiphany um, in the CIO that says, I don't need a private network. And the better job we do as an industry of ensuring security and data privacy with published uh, applications, you know, through the internet, the better, you know, that, you know, that's going to accelerate. So what mm -hmm. we're going to see is we're going to see maybe right now one to 2% a year go away from a private network altogether. And eventually it's going to accelerate to 20% a year. Right. Right. Which, you know, certainly from, from the carrier standpoint, that, that still means transport networks are in place, managed services are in place. It's not, not like the business disappears, but as a conceptual thing, you think that, that it is the case that, that, that the, the, the private enterprise network will essentially disappear in that sense. Yeah. The private network connectivity becomes more of the carrier hotel, the, the mm -hmm. Equinex is mm -hmm. the digital realty, you know, the uh, hyperscalers, you know, the, right. a lot of like, you know, for AT&T, a lot of the bandwidth they're going to be selling is in that hyperscaler space or, mm -hmm. or that, you know, that sort of equivalent. And then the access piece really looks more like a consumer model. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, mm -hmm. right. you know, it's, that's why we're, we're putting so much money into to fiber, you know, to every household, every small yep. business, every strip mall, every place we can put fiber is because it starts to really look more like a consumer model, no matter who pays for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, I've often said if you have fiber to the premises, you don't even really need DIA per se, you know, the, obviously contention rates and that sort of thing. And I think wow. most enterprises will still want to pick something that has some SLAs, you know, even for, for right. internet kind of service. But, uh, but ultimately we're still a long way from that world in a global network because the internet doesn't work so well in a lot of locations, but certainly in, in places where it, where it does, I, I definitely uh, see, see that future along with you. Um, Jeremiah, this was a great conversation. I think one of the things I really liked about the book you also did in this conversation, which was distilling all of these sort of difficult technical concepts into analogies, stories, you know, that that's very clear. So just give a plug for the book in that sense that it was it was very readable. Um, I liked also that you could jump around in the book. You wouldn't have to, I read it, you know, front to back, but but you, you could certainly jump into a section that you particularly w wanted to bone up on or whatever, and you redefine things there and that. So, you know, thanks very much for for taking time out of your business busy schedule to, uh, to write this book. It was very helpful for me, and I'm sure it will be for many of the listeners. How can they find you, the book, uh, you know, keep, keep uh, up with everything that you're doing? Sure, sure. Uh, so if they go to jeremiahginn.us, that'll pull up my LinkedIn profile and uh, it'll have access to everything I've got going on, which is a wide variety of things. Uh, mm -hmm. The book's available in about 10 countries right now. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to do the uh, Audible format on it, but it's on Kindle and print today. Mm. And um, and if you want to just go to Amazon and search on Jeremiah again, what you're going to find is the book is usually the first uh, uh, link that comes back. Excellent. Are you gonna Are you gonna read it? Or are you gonna hire someone to read it? <laughs> Always that's curious about that. That's the hardest question. Um, yeah. No, that's the hardest question. Uh, definitely for the other languages because we're going to do it multiple languages. Right. You know, I'm right, going right. to ask someone else to do it, but that's been the hardest question. So we're still working on the answer to that question. 
It does take a lot of time, I guess. But I, I, I personally, I'm a big audiobook consumer because I've, I've got kids and a job and stuff, and I, I mostly can read books while while uh, moving about in the world and doing other things. And uh, I, I, do, I do like uh, hearing a book read by the author. It just gives it a little bit extra, you know, sort of fun. So, best of luck with that. Thanks so much for joining me. This was great fun. Thanks, sir. Appreciate you. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com, and we'll see you on the Internet.